Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. It's our second, I will say somewhat annual, quarter an, quarter annual? Quart, quart, you, I don't quarterly? know. Quarterly? Quarterly. We'll need to make up a word. For, yeah, for <laughs> I think it's just quarterly. We get to talk to each other again, not like we don't do that already, uh, but we're, we're going to talk through some of the things we've learned this quarter. And I cannot believe we're already almost halfway through the year. This has gone fast, hasn't it? Yeah, it's it's kind of terrifying, but yeah. <laughs> it's all good. I'm sure that everyone listening is equally excited and terrified by how quickly. <laughs> yeah, and, and and so I just want to say thank you. We had a great feedback about the last one. Had a lot of people listen to it. Got some good feedback. So we're looking forward to doing this again. And we'll jump right in. You know, I like I like diving in feet first. Uh, hopefully, there's water in the pool. And Angela. Tell me what you've learned about marketing this quarter. What's funny about this is that I'm finding every time it's hard to choose what I want to focus on for the episode. But the Mm -hmm. two things that I wanted to highlight this time, one is a Marketing Smarts podcast that I was listening to actually earlier just this week. We're recording in mid-June. And it was about creating content that sells. And I know that probably sounds counterintuitive for for school people. But you know me, I love to find parallels between the business world and the school world. And there were quite a few in this one. At districts as well, the, the biggest thing that I took away from it was the concept of creating content that answers customers' questions. And so that's something that we certainly try to do here at Niche. But thinking about schools and districts that might have blogs or other pieces of content that they might be using for lead magnets and things like that, it's really helpful to think about what your prospective families or families that are moving to your area want to know while they're going through the school search process and what, what, what they want to know what they're thinking about, what they're worried about, what they're going through, you know, in the process of trying to figure out, you know, am I going to enroll in my local district? Am I going to do private school? Am I going to do a charter? We know that lots of families are looking at multiple types of schools when they're going through that process. And so not just thinking about the things that you want to tell them, but making sure that you're thinking about the things that they really want to know and Mm -hmm. where your institution fits within that story. The other piece that I thought was really a great reminder is not to be afraid of content that tells people why your institution might not be the right fit. That's a little bit more applicable to private and independent schools since they have control, you know, over, over who they admit. But Your mission and your brand, your educational philosophy, those are not things that are going to be the right fit for every family. And that's actually okay. And I I think that's something that schools can really struggle with. But it's just as important to make sure that you're sending the right messages to people who you do want to pull into your community, but also being very, very clear about you know, where there might be a misalignment. And that's actually something that I'm going to come back to um, in our enrollment conversation. But I think for businesses and schools alike, that's something that's really important to keep in mind. Yeah. And and that's something absolutely applicable in higher ed. Everyone wants to talk about their welcoming community and we're this and that. And okay, but who is not a good fit? Right. That's really hard to say. It's hard to say no. Right. I don't I don't know a lot of people who like saying no to applicants, who like no. saying no to to students who come up to you at a college fair or whatever, but you cannot be 
the perfect fit for everybody. You can't. And I actually, I remember a webinar that we did a few months ago where I got a question about that exactly, where Mm -hmm. basically this person was trying to figure out how you reconcile bringing in right fit families with meeting your numbers. And Mm -hmm. my response to that was hitting your numbers and worrying about family acquisition is only one piece of the puzzle. And if you're hitting your numbers, so to speak, and you're bringing in a certain number of new families, but you can't hold on to them because they get there and they find out, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought I was getting. This isn't the experience I thought I was going to have. Then you're creating a different problem. And it's, it's less expensive. It's less of an effort to retain families than it is to bring in new ones. So you really have to think about that as well. It's not just... You're, you're solving one problem, but creating another if you're so focused on hitting a certain number of new families, but you can't retain them because they're not actually right for your institution. Yeah. You know, if you're bringing in people who aren't retaining, that creates a negative issue in the community of, of people who had these friends who aren't there anymore. Yep. But also if you bring in the wrong people who are a detriment to that community, either right. with behavior or just not the right fit in one way or another, that hurts your community you have to think about all that as much as you don't want to. Absolutely. I, at the end of the day, I would rather have fewer high quality, well-matched families Mm -hmm. uh, than end up having issues with retention in the long run. Yeah. Let's, let's move on. What, what else have you learned? So the other piece that I wanted to highlight in this conversation is actually a blog post by Joe Monzo from Monzo Media Productions. He's fairly well known in the K-12 private school space for doing videography for K-12 private schools. And this this is another one where it's that corporate versus nonprofit education mm-hmm. lesson. The post was about what nonprofit schools can learn, nonprofits and schools can learn from his corporate clients because he also does work with corporate clients as well. Some of these were, were really interesting because I'm finding that there's almost this interesting shift that's taking place where I'm starting to see more and more conversations about the need for schools to think about themselves as businesses. And Mm -hmm. that's something that we've kind of known to be true in the background for a while, but I'm seeing a lot more momentum around, around this discussion. And so one piece is that even though human connection and emotion are really important in video, especially among schools, there are still some things that you can incorporate from a business perspective that won't necessarily change the tone of your video, but make them work more effectively. So it's not necessarily about the content, but it's things like making sure that you have clear calls to action in your videos. Give people something to do. Don't just create a video for the sake of creating a video, but having something for them to do next is always a good practice. It's the so what. You have to have that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's also where it's really important to have clarity around what the target audience is for a video. Is it more internal? Is it more of a feel good piece for your current families? Or is it something that you're truly trying to use for recruitment? So those are all things that are really important, not just having the CTA, but thinking about whether or not you need one and what it should be should all be Mm -hmm. informed by your audience like kind of pulling the thread on internal video use. I I don't know that schools always think about it that way, but you can have 
videos that are externally focused and videos that are internally focused. So one of the examples that Joe included was having video embedded in your newsletter. And this was actually something Mm. that we did when I was at my previous school during the pandemic. We had all of the division directors, which are principal equivalents in independent schools and the head of school do a video at the top of their newsletter every week. And so for one, it was a way for people to see them because, you know, one of the really big challenges with the earlier days of the pandemic is that all of a sudden you went from seeing some people every day, you know, when you're dropping your kids off in carpool and volunteering to having that in-person connection and interaction just abruptly cut off. So we wanted to give parents and students a way to see these people that they had these really deep relationships with. And even after that sort of acute stage of the pandemic ended and people were used to coming into the buildings again, the head of school continued to do those videos because he just felt like it was really important. It also can help you to be a little bit more succinct. So if you have some folks that can be long-winded in in <laughs> writing, but you want to help them to stay a little bit tighter with a message, video can definitely do that. And something that I think businesses do very regularly that schools haven't necessarily adopted on a global scale is using video for internal professional development. So you don't always have to have a giant assembly and pull everyone together for a full day or half day of PD. You can think about ways that you can take some of that professional development, pre-record it, make it available on demand for people to watch on their own time. The other piece that I would say is really important, and we're going to say this about pretty much anything to the extent that it's possible, is that you have to look at your data. We are very, very guilty in K-12 of doing a lot of things and not really measuring most of them. And part of it is time, part of it is skill set, but it's really important to make sure that you're actually reviewing your data, analyzing that data, and using it to make decisions about how you're going to continue to use video going forward. When you did that, was it something that was actually embedded in the email or was it one of those screenshots that takes you out to a landing page? It was a screenshot that took you out to a landing page. So the way that we had our newsletter structured, there was an email that you got, you know, that every parent got with Mm -hmm. a section for the head of school, a section for each age group. And then when you clicked through to the section for your age group, it took you to a page on the website. There was a newsletter section. Mm -hmm. It was one of the few sort of internal, but also somewhat externally facing pieces of content with that sort of hybrid audience that Mm -hmm. we had on our website so that you could see the full newsletter for your division with the video at the top. So you could watch the video at the very top and then jump down and, and read about what was going on in your division. I like that. As you're talking about data, did you do any A-B tests of that and see, you know, do we have a control without video and an experiment with the video? We didn't because it was such a, I don't want to say scramble, but it was, it was one of many things where, you know, in this acute stage of the pandemic, it was like, how can we make this experience better (laughs) for families? So we just did it. Let's keep our head above water, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was all about keeping our heads above water. And I, I think what's tough too is, 
you know, it can be a resource issue creating the the two distinct versions of each newsletter and, and all of that. So I think in a perfect world, I would absolutely recommend that. I think it's worth doing, especially now yeah. that we're not necessarily in a state where you need to do something like that. But if that is a tactic that you want to try, I think it's absolutely worth testing. And if you're in a school mm-hmm. like I was, that's PK to 12, you may find that families that have little ones need something very different from the families who have high schoolers and they're kind of like, eh, I just need to know what's going on. That's where I think it can be especially helpful is helping you to figure out a more segmented approach to how you do your newsletter. Because what works for your elementary school families may not work for middle school families or high school families. A lot of people hear about how, well, video is more engaging. People want video. They want, And then they just say, well, we just have to make videos without really thinking through strategically exactly why, what's it going to do, what's it going to lead to. And you just have these videos that get very little engagement because it's, here's a video with our our dean talking about this program dryly staring at the camera for 25 minutes. Right. Who's going to watch that? No one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the people who made it, the people in the office, the dean, the dean's mom. Yeah. I think the dean's mom will be a huge fan. Yes. (laughs) But there has to be the, so what there has to be the, this is made to serve this purpose. We will use it on these channels. It will lead to, X behavior. If it doesn't, then let's try. Can we chop it up in a different format? Can we use 30 second versions? Can we use minute versions? If those still don't work, okay, that was a fail experiment for that type of video. Yep. But you have to collect, analyze the data, and ideal world, have the controls so you can test it against because you might see, oh, well, this had a, th- this newsletter with it in it had a 40% click through rate. But if your control had a 65% click through rate, Okay, that was a good number, but it was a lower engagement still. Yep. So what can we do differently? Yeah. And I, I think that's a great point too, and looking at the full story. Mm-hmm. Right. So don't just look through don't just look at click through rate, but you have to look at the complete package. Like yes. what's actually what's your happening. Conversion? What's your Yes. Yes. How long are they watching the video for? Mm-hmm. What's the abandonment rate? Those are all things that mm-hmm. you have to pay attention to so that you get a full picture of what's going on using your UTM code or query strings or whatever you're using to track, depending on how you're set up there, you know, what are they doing next? Are they taking, if the videos just help support fundraising or Mm -hmm. visits or registration for next year, is it actually doing that? Right. I've had situations before where the campaign did have strong outcomes, but wasn't the intended outcome, which was really, really interesting because that is, a failure and yet a success. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a visit campaign and yet it wasn't driving visits, it was driving applications, which is what we ultimately wanted anyway. Yeah, but, that's so interesting. Okay, so this type of content was better at driving enough interest that they were ready to apply. Great. But then we still have to try and get them to come and visit right. at some point because <laughs> you want them to. We still need to get them to campus. <laughs> and that's a whole other a whole other thing there. I assume it's sort of a true situation in K-12. In higher ed, we always think of a visit being a high indication that someone will enroll. And I always wonder now, is it flipped? Someone who's likely to enroll is more likely to visit. I, you know, what's interesting about that is I was just listening to a webinar last week 
it was basically two people in senior enrollment positions in independent schools reflecting back on the last year and some of the trends that they're seeing, some things that they've changed tactically, uh, things that they kept from the pandemic, things that they, mm-hmm. they've given up. And one of the observations both of these enrollment leaders made is that they're seeing an increase in people, you know, the stealth applicant, right? The people yep. that go straight to the application without really, in some cases, knowing anything about the school. They just, yeah. which is, it's it's fascinating. Or at least they like, think they don't know anything. They think they don't. Right, yeah. right, exactly. And I, I think there was a lot more of that straight to the application without really knowing mm. much about an institution when people just wanted their kids in school. But mm. what's actually happening now is they think this is just another symptom of this overall trend where you have this entire generation of consumers who are used to doing all of this research on their own mm-hmm. and all of this compares that we see it on our platform, right? They're doing all this self-service. So they're ready to make a decision without even talking to you in a lot of situations, yeah. right? It's the window shoppers. Exactly. Yeah. We yeah. did a whole playbook on that. that yeah. The people who are looking... I'd pose this question to you. If you're looking for a new car, you got a new car. It feels like not that long ago. It's probably a while ago now. Did you do a lot of research online or did you prefer to go in and talk to the salesman? Oh, I didn't talk to anybody. Exactly. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? I didn't talk to anybody. And, and I, why I didn't was even that? ordering the car. I did it on my own. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You, you can do that now too. Yeah. And, and why was that? Did you feel like you would get better information if you talk to the salesman? Nope. No. Did you feel like you'd get less biased information talking to the salesman? Nope. Did you feel like you could make the decision on your own time if you talk to the salesman? No. <laughs> so let's, it's, it's a similar, I mean, it's very, it's, it, you're, you're exactly There's so right. many parallels there because especially when you think about the costs of things, Yes. you know, especially if you're looking at independent K through 12, yeah. you'll get higher costs typically than a car. Yes. And college, depending on where you're going and how much aid you're receiving, it may be more than a car. Yep. So if we're training people to go online instead of come and talk to people, why are we surprised that they're not coming and talking to us? Yes, you're, you're totally right. And I just, there was a, a uh, LinkedIn post that I commented on, I think it was yesterday, that was basically talking about, it was someone from the brand team at Simpson Scarborough. Mm-hmm how your only competition is not just other schools. Your competition for content, for attention, for interaction, all of that is coming from retail. It's coming from, you know, multimedia companies. It's it's coming from all of these other inputs that your prospective students and families are engaging with. It's not mm-hmm. just other schools. You're competing with Apple. You're competing with Nordstrom. You're competing with grocery stores. And so you really have to think about that. So if I can buy a car without talking to a soul, I mean, I definitely was online in forums, talking to other mm-hmm. people who had the car, talking to people who made the same comparisons than I did. I absolutely consulted with other consumers. Mm-hmm. I didn't call anyone or speak to anyone at a dealership until I was ready to order the car and I wanted to confirm that I would be able to lock in my price (laughs) because it was at a time where, (laughs) you know, that, and that's, but that's everything else was done. I knew exactly Mm -hmm. what I wanted. I knew the color. I knew the trim Mm -hmm. level. 
every single detail, I was like, I just need you to be the person who makes it happen and confirms that I don't get a surprise when my car actually arrives. Yep. I can do that for a much smaller investment than X number of years at an independent school or four or five, six years at a college. You better believe people are going to want to do the same thing. And now you've got that great purple Plymouth Reliant and you're all set. And- <laughs> Okay, so as usual, we've gone on a bit of a tangent there, a very passionate tangent, but a tangent. <laughs> How about on the enrollment side of the house? Ah, uh, enrollment, enrollment, enrollment. So <laughs> this is this is interesting. I'm actually, I'm going to flip this because I think, well, the order of, of what I was going to talk about, because I, I think that one of these is so related to the content conversation we were having earlier and that need for clarity. Mm-hmm. And so there was an article that I read, Scott Butterworth, who is a wonderful, wonderful colleague. He used to be in-house, then he created his own consultancy and think his consultancy was actually acquired. So he's he's out there killing it on the content scene for K-12 schools and, and some colleges and other nonprofits as well. But he has a newsletter that's called The Refill. He had an article in his latest issue about parents going to court over DEI curriculum in schools. And we know the culture wars are nothing new. <laughs> yep, yep. We we know that this is happening. I think it's been particularly visible in the public school space, although things have quieted down a little bit this past year. So this is independent school specific, and it was a reflection on an article that Bloomberg did about parents that are suing elite schools because of their DEI curricula. And there's a range of because reasons. Because they're not doing enough to support students, right? That's the oh, yeah, logical yes. one. They oh. need to be more supportive. They need to create an environment where the students <laughs> feel safe and supported and loved. And all right, so good. I All right, I like that. I, if only order. that was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. To live in a world where that was the issue. Um, unfortunately, that is not. And there, there's all sorts of things that are cited in the article and, and lots of things that we've seen play out in the news. But the biggest takeaway for me, and this was actually a pretty hot topic at EMA last year, the Enrollment Management Association Conference about the need for clarity about your DEI initiatives very, at the earliest stages of mm-hmm the admissions process. And and that was the big thing that I think is that the crux of this issue. It's not just about DEI or other things that might be happening in schools, but there can be a real misalignment between what parents think they're going to experience when they join a school community and what's actually happening. And this is such a fundamental branding issue. Mm-hmm. But I think with DEI work in particular, it's it's tough for schools because it's hard to draw a clear line in the sand without someone being upset. Yes. I think that is where it requires taking a really hard look in the mirror as a community. And this is part of branding too. I always say that branding is like therapy for an institution, right? And Mm -hmm. this is part of that. Part of that is understanding what your community is actually ready for from a DEI standpoint, because there are always going to be pockets of people who are 
really far ahead and pockets of people who are really far behind wherever it is that an institution's trying to go. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be really honest internally about where you are and you have to be willing to own that. There are schools that are in different parts of the spectrum with diversity work, but In general, it's so important to be really transparent about what your culture is, what your programmatic priorities are. And you have to do that from the very, very beginning. I mean, that somebody, you can't wait until someone's at an event or sitting in an admission officer's office or worse, they've already signed an enrollment contract and then they're finding out what your institution's actually about. You can't hide something like this. So it's just, it's a full circle conversation about being clear about what students and families you're able to serve and which Mm -hmm. ones aren't a fit for your institution. And being really clear about that from the very, very beginning, it just, it ends up being better for everybody in the long run. I'll I'll save my thoughts there because I have a whole soapbox on <laughs> on diversity with the impending, and maybe by the time this releases, the Supreme Court will have come out, and I will maybe maybe on that, on that <laughs> going the direction I assume it will. But we'll save that for Q three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll let my head explode then. <laughs> <laughs> so the the second one is actually it's a hard right into the district world, but it was an it was an article that I found to be really fascinating. And this was in district administration. And it was about a superintendent not too far from me in Roanoke, Virginia, who basically went door to door in her district and sat down and interviewed people in the neighborhoods that her district serves. Um, it's Verletta White from Roanoke City Public Schools for those who want to dig into it a little bit Mm -hmm. further. And she became superintendent right in the thick of the pandemic. And so she really felt the best way to understand what was going on in her community was to just roll up her sleeves and sit down with people. And this tour that she did helped her to uncover some common pain points in the community in a way that I think can be hard to do with surveys and some of the more structured, formal forms of feedback that districts typically solicit the outcome of these conversations were she was able to pull this feedback into their strategic plan. One of the things that they identified is that there was a real gap in access to career and technical education programs. They were sort of concentrated in one area. And for other families who didn't have transportation or had other access issues, they couldn't, they wanted to take advantage of the CTE programs, but just couldn't get to them. So part of the new plan is that there's this equity in action initiative so that they can double CTE seat capacity just in the upcoming school year. So it's already something that's happening and that's going to give students access to all of these different pathways to culinary arts, welding, you know, working hair, hairstyling, criminal justice, landscaping, mm-hmm. so they can graduate with a diploma, but also have a resume that they can take right out into the marketplace. And I think this just reinforces the importance of getting a range of feedback from families. You know, I we're always going to be fans of surveys. We think they're really important, mm-hmm. but making sure that your leadership is also taking time to have conversations with families both when they're new to a community, when they're leaving a community. That's a big one that I I think a lot of schools miss. It's just as important to know what you're doing well as it is to know where you're maybe not meeting Mm -hmm. your family's needs so that that can inform your strategy. And it's also important to make sure that it's happening from the top down 
everywhere. It's not just the communications office. It's not just the admissions office, but it's really the responsibility of other people in leadership to make sure that they're getting this feedback and that they're giving families that kind of access to provide it. I got to have coffee with a former coworker yesterday. Well, it was tea for me. So I'm wrong on both counts. <laughs> and we're going, my old mater is going through a, a presidential transition. And mm. we talked about sort of that listening session process. And, you know, you're talking about this and it's interesting because on the higher ed side, it's much easier to do this type of listening tour because you have alumni who are engaged. Yeah. Especially at like a public district. How often do you have like regular alumni meetings? Right, uh, right, right. You have students who are very easy to get access to because they live on campus typically, not always, not for everybody we know. You have the parents who have no shortage of coming to you if there's an issue at least. <laughs> uh, so the, these sort of listening tours are much, much easier to do in higher ed. And I would assume at independent schools as well. Yeah. But at public districts, yeah, it can be really hard because you can't just rely on who comes to a school board meeting because right. not everyone has access to, not everyone has time to, not everyone feels a need to. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, you can end up to, it, th- these meetings can be really big productions because I'm mm-hmm. actually in a district where we just had a superintendent change this year. Mm-hmm. And it's a large district. Fairfax County Public Schools has 180,000 students. Um, So we are one of the largest districts in the country. And our new superintendent basically had a series of town halls and meet and greets where Mm -hmm. at different school sites throughout um, the county, people had an opportunity to come and ask questions and you know, I know that the discourse for those was a bit more civil than it can be in, in some districts. That's that's always a challenge. But they also really went out of their way to make sure that there was a multimedia component. So they had someone, you know, making sure that there was a video feed so you could see what was happening. They were taking questions from both the live audience and, the you know, remote people who mm-hmm. were logging in remotely. So that's one of those situations, too, where it's possible. It's just it requires a lot of legwork to make sure that people have access to participate. And the sessions were recorded as well, which was great um, so that you could kind of go back and, and see what was discussed. Mm-hmm. And that's something that they do a pretty good job um, of doing that with school board meetings as well. But depending on the size of your district, the resources, it, it can definitely be a challenge. Yeah. But it's worth yeah. it. Yeah. Taking the conversation to people, making sure that everyone has access, especially in a larger district like this. I, I don't know the the area wise if, if it's all of Fairfax County, but. Yeah. And that's where I think having the multi-site strategy was really helpful, where it's like yeah. if you're in this pyramid, then you go to this school for mm-hmm. the meeting. And if you're, you know, so it's it's, it's interesting having moved from a state that has a city system to a county system <laughs> just yeah. seeing how much more complex and and this, the difference in scale. Um, I've actually been really, this is a bit of a tangent, but I've been really blown away by how strong the communication is in this district because that's just something you you never know what to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they're very, very good about using multiple communications vehicles and making sure like if you miss something, 
then you're doing something wrong because yeah. anytime there's something happening at the district level or at the school level, we get an email, I get a text message telling me to check my email. We have an app that we use to communicate with our son's teacher. I mean, it, it's a necessity with a district of this size, but it's been really, really impressive to see how they're um, if you're working at a smaller district or a medium-sized district and you're looking for some pointers, reach out to the folks in Fairfax yeah. County's communications office because they're working some magic up there for sure. And maybe that's one of the strengths of having the county-based system. Instead of having six or seven school districts each trying to have someone do it, you have one system, you can have a couple, two, three yeah. marketing people, communications people rather than trying to get six, seven who you can't pay well. Right. Right. Yeah. And constantly searching. That never happens, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're up. Uh-oh. Well, <laughs> on the enrollment front, I think the number one thing I want to talk about, it came up several places this, this past quarter. How are we maintaining and growing diversity? in spite of all these different headwinds we've got coming at us mm -hmm. uh, with the Supreme Court decision that will very likely limit not just how you serve, but also how you recruit and how you even prospect. Yeah. There's states that are outright hostile to diversity. And we saw that in some of the student responses that state mm. politics and local politics are influencing where they consider going to college. Yeah, And then financial barriers. Mm. And this would is sort of a double-edged sword because while we know it's a major issue, I think it may also provide the workaround uh, in terms of financial aid based on need being bolstered. Uh, so two things that came out of the junior survey, the first being that 43% of underrepresented minority students who responded who knew their household income because a lot of juniors don't know it. They haven't filed yeah, the FC yet. Of I don't know how often it comes up around the, the dinner table. <laughs> 43% report is low income compared to 21% of their peers. More than double, which... Wow. Flipping that a little, 63% of all low-income respondents identify as underrepresented minority. So I think the workaround there, if you're providing more aid for low-income students, then 63% of those you serve and you'll have to, I mean, each institution will have to look at their own numbers and see how this plays out for their student body. Right. Or I would even say their inquiry pool, their FAFSA pool, mm -hmm. uh, because you may be not enrolling students because you're not providing the aid. Right. But that's a way to help maintain or grow your diversity, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's something to, to check and experiment. I think we also, in light of all these headwinds, I think institutions and individuals and offices and staff need to sit down and think, what does diversity mean to us? Yes. And then the second part here, why does it matter to you and your students? And I don't want people to say, well, why is Will even questioning this? I think we always have to kind of question these types of things. Yeah. You have to think about why does it matter to you and your students? And if you can't define that in a meaningful and specific way, and say it matters because of these experiences, these outcomes, then I think you need to evaluate whether or not it actually does matter to you. That's not an easy thing to say. But if you can just say, well, we want to provide a diverse learning experience, that's, that's general. How? Yep. yep. And if you can't do that, does it really matter? 
I think that goes back to the internal therapy discussion, right? Mm -hmm. And and part of this is best of intentions, what is really going on in your institution? Yeah. What's the reality? You know, if you say that you're committed to diversity, at the most fundamental level, defining what that means Mm -hmm. is a step that I'm not certain a lot of institutions have taken because diversity can mean a lot of different things. There's there's the visible diversity, right, which is what a lot of people tend to think about when they when that word comes up, but there's also socioeconomic diversity. There's mm-hmm. there's diversity of I mean, learning urban and rural. There's on the higher ed side what what types of high schools did they come from? Right. In some institutions you have religious diversity and and you yeah. need to figure out what diversity means to you what actually matters yeah okay so what does diversity mean then exactly there's places where you might not consider that at all it's like well if we're religiously diverse great if not okay great that doesn't really matter and it may be the same with well you know like uh if you're a community college in the bronx maybe geographic diversity doesn't matter that much because your calling is to serve students in the bronx and surrounding boroughs okay, then ignore that portion of it. But if you can't define what diversity is, why it matters specifically, then I would argue it probably doesn't actually matter to you. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Bit of a another soapbox there. but <laughs> And related here is we're on the diversity train from the junior survey. And this is that so what, right? Mm-hmm. So what? 85% of the class of 2024 said they want a diverse student body. 82% want to see diversity in faculty and staff. That that matters. I, I've, yeah. I've shared, when I share that second stat, I always tell people, print that out, go take it to HR. You know, go. <laughs> right. Because a lot of times you'll you'll see institutions that talk about, well, we want a diverse learning environment, da-da-da-da, and then you look at their faculty and staff, and it's like, do you really? Yeah. And I'm yeah. looking around and... I think it's not just defining what diversity means, being intentional about it, being clear about it, but looking at how your current institution supports your claims or takes away from your claims. If you're in a situation too, this is a conversation I've had with friends of mine on the corporate side who are are dealing with, with some of this as well, where they're like, we're committed to diversity. We want to create this really diverse working environment, but we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. You can own that. You yeah. can be honest about that. Yep. It's okay to say, hey, this is what we're committed to and we know we're not there yet, but these are the steps that we're taking to get there. So it doesn't look like you're making empty promises by putting mm-hmm. a single staged photo of you know, we all know the Benetton photo, right? That everybody uses from preschool all the way up to graduate school, right? Where it's like, we got to get this one photo that yep. makes us look diverse. Okay. And I'm, I'm using air quotes. You can't yeah. see it because you're listening. <laughs> but it's like, well, that's, smiling that's students not... in front of a school or sitting yes. in steps or sitting yes. in a classroom. Look at, we're all friends. Isn't it great? But yeah. that's not reality. And, and you have to, you cannot stage diversity. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time with photography, please don't do that. Take pictures of what your your classrooms and your learning spaces actually look like with the humans that actually go to your school and yeah. interact with each other. Don't lie to people because the second they do come in for a visit, it's going to be really clear 
that there was a bit of a bait and switch between the website yep. and what they're <laughs> seeing when they walk your halls. So if you are newly committed or you're on a journey with diversity, don't be afraid to be open about that because people mm-hmm. will appreciate that transparency more than if you tried to make your institution look like something that it isn't. This along with so many factors, it's not a plant the, fo- the flag and celebrate thing. Right. It's a constant, I mean, your, your class changes every year, every semester yep. even. It's something you constantly have to pay attention to and you yeah. constantly have to be aware of yeah. your classes coming in, who they are, who are you supporting, who you're retaining, who are you graduating. Yep. I did several interviews and we put together a blog post on some expert advice. So I looked for colleges, both public and private, who were serving more diverse student bodies and were having high graduation rates, high success, mm. because that's the thing I want to look for. Not just who has a diverse student body, but who is not failing them. Right. If you don't have the success platforms in place, you don't have the support, you don't have the environment, you are letting some students down. It goes back to that. Are you everything to everyone? Right. Who, who fits in best here? Who can you support best? If you are really not great at supporting a a certain type of student, you're doing them a disservice by telling them they, they would thrive there. Yeah. Some of the things that came out of those interviews is really the need to tailor communications to students and speak to their situation. So if you're looking for geographic diversity, having different messages to students based on where they're from, local students need different things than those from five hours away. Yeah. Having people who's in your office, whose role is dedicated to access, at least in part. I think that's something that gets forgotten. I used to be of the mindset, and this is something that I came around to after several conversations. If something is a priority, then it's everybody's job. But if you don't have someone dedicated Uh, to it, then it's nobody's job. There are some things you really have to make sure someone owns. Yeah. Even if it's technically, you know, like there's the idea in K-12 schools that like, especially private and independent schools, that admission is everyone's job and fundraising is everyone's job. And that's all theoretically true, but you still need someone to drive (laughs) all the work. Someone still needs to be in charge, right? That's, that's important. We don't need a, we don't need a communications person because that's everybody's job. Everyone should be sharing the story, right? Uh (laughs) Communications in particular always feels like it's everyone's job more than anything else. (laughs) And that's something that that I learned. I I think that I was mistaken to believe that at at one point. But you have to have people who own the recruitment of different populations. Yeah. And they can help support everybody else, but they are the contact person. They are the point person. Right. Leveraging need-based aid came up in there. And I think Mm. it goes back to what I was talking about. It's one that we have to keep thinking about. How do we meet students where they are? How do we serve them with where they are rather than expecting them to figure it all out and come to us? Lots of great points there. And I, mm-hmm. I think there are some some parallels with K-12 as well. You know, transportation is something that can be make or break for families as they're evaluating mm-hmm. schools. So that's something that you want to be very, very clear about if you do you have really solid services in place for making sure that kids can get where they need to get? That's something mm-hmm. that you want to put front and center, but also something you want to be mindful of as you're you're thinking about your outreach to 
especially thinking about districts to some of these wider geographic areas, if you have families in rural locations or families that might not, you know, they might have issues with transportation. Maybe they're relying mm-hmm. on public transportation to to get to and from places. So making sure that you're giving them access to your community. You know, they're getting access to school board meetings and some of the things that we mm-hmm. talked about before. Language barriers are also a big one that yeah. we see in the district space. So that's always something to be aware of. And interestingly, digital accessibility is really important. It's something that districts do really well because they're required to, but Mm. it's not necessarily as prevalent a concern in the private and independent school world. And I I would definitely recommend that people take another look at that. It's easy to ignore. I don't think it's a significant enough of a pain point where schools are seeing enrollment issues, but Mm. as a general best practice, you want to make sure that your website is accessible to people who might have visual impairments, hearing impairments, things like that. Those are just things that you should be thinking about. I just wanted, in case people haven't seen two of our surveys that came out this quarter, just hit a few of the the key points for there. So if you're on a K-12 side, these may not pertain to you, but (laughs) they're they're things that that I learned that I think are really key. And if you haven't seen them yet, head back to the blog and, and read these. Put out the junior survey this quarter. A few of the key points there when I gave a list of ways to research colleges and students were given the choice to select up to three that they preferred to do researching specific colleges, top three going to the college's website, 62%. So is your website user-friendly? Can they find the information they're looking for? Like is your, is your website geared towards prospective students or is it geared towards internal audiences mm-hmm. in terms of structure, information, readability? Going to niche was their number two at 45%. And then going to campus visits was third at 36%. And then we had a lot that that dropped off after that. So students, again, top two there, they're going online for their search. It's this window shopping. They're not necessarily filling out the inquiry form. They're not coming to campus and saying, hey, can you talk to me about your new car? Uh, (laughs) they, They are going to where they can do the research themselves find what they think matters most, and then you're supplementing that, Yeah. right? So they're getting a lot of these basics, but then they want to know more about your processes. Why you specifically? Answering their questions. 80% of students said they'd be more interested in a college which offered direct admissions, and it was even more appealing to underrepresented students, first-gen, low-income. That one was really surprising. You know, I, I, I figured it was something that was appealing, just based mm-hmm. on the, the feedback we've seen already. But 80% saying they'd be more interested in college that offered them that pathway. Filling out the application is a pain point. We know that. Yeah. Writing the essays, taking the time to go through, fill everything in, figure out where you want to apply. So if instead you have a profile and colleges come to you, one, it's that they want me, they're coming to me. Yes. Okay. Everyone wants to feel wanted, right? That was really great there. I really, really hope this third point changes significantly next year so I can stop reporting it. (laughs) Only 15% of students said they received personalized and relevant information. And 22% said that all colleges look and sound the same. It got worse from last year. That's just, I just can't. It's going the wrong direction. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I mean, think about what are the taglines you hear in K-12? 
we provide a academic oh, wow. excellence. We provide a supportive learning environment. You know, uh, we are a welcoming community. Our faculty are top rated. You know, my favorite is our students develop a lifelong love of learning, and it's yep. like, oh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, if not, then something is not right. So next quarter, we'll get to talk about. What I'll be pointing out here, I just wrapped up a year-long secret shopping as a junior. I can't wait for that one. To understand junior comm flows, because yeah. I've, I've looked at seniors a number of times. One, I was surprised by the number of people that have no junior comm flow or yeah. did not allow me to inquire as a junior. I could only inquire as a senior. Oh, boy. That's a separate issue. And partially because a non-zero number there I thought was unacceptable. But... Uh, <laughs> The number of times where if you just blocked out the name, you'd have no idea who it was because every email looked and sounded the same. If I'm looking at visit emails specifically, you could basically template visit emails regardless of the college and they're all going to look and sound the same. That was crazy. And then 7% said they prefer to use chatbots to learn about colleges and 24% said they would if they had to. You know, AI is it's not going to be something that people are jumping all over. On the grad survey, grad students want in-person education. Even though, you know, online provides more flexibility, more options, they still want in-person. I think we've seen what emergency online instruction looks like. They're not big fans. (laughs) And I think that translates to they've had bad experiences online, not Mm -hmm. interested in doing it again. Social media was almost a non-factor for grad searchers. Like they're not turning to social media to do their research. We typically see lower numbers there, but if you feel like you're stretched for resources, there's better places you can go. And then just in general, they wanted less marketing and more process-oriented support. They're, again, they're they're window shoppers. They've been through the search process once or more if they've transferred. So they know typically how the process goes. They want to know, what do I need to do to fit your processes? Only a third of them said they wanted weekly outreach they felt that was acceptable even. And 9% said they wanted no contact at all in any any channel from a college. They want to do it all themselves up until they apply. Wow. And they're primarily wanting to know about financial aid, what are your deadlines, what are your mm-hmm. application requirements. Again, it's that process. Yeah. They don't necessarily need the fluff. They're doing the research. They know where they want to go. They want to know from you, what do I have to do here? A big concern there uh, when we ask about things they're concerned about, affordability. It's up to 90% said they were concerned about affording their their grad degree compared to 84% last year. So a big jump. That's an issue. Yeah. Okay, let's jump into marketing. Woohoo! Let's do it. Angela, do you you have any thoughts about AI or ChatGPT? What? No. Of course, I'm kidding. And anyone who has followed me on LinkedIn or spoken to me in the last, gosh, six months knows that I have feelings. I'll try to summarize them fairly succinctly. I mean, overall, I, as Will knows, Anne Handley of all of the marketing genius and content brilliance is sort of my Yoda in this situation <laughs> because Her perspective on this is probably my favorite in that hype aside, it's a tool Mm -hmm. and we need to treat it like a tool. 
It's not a savior. You should not be putting all of your content eggs into this basket, but it is a tool that we don't necessarily need to fear. I mean, there are some really um, catastrophic headlines that I've seen, and my brother seems to believe. (laughs) Yeah, I I do have a, a relative or two who seems to believe that they're going to take over the world. I am not of that particular thought, but I, I do think, one, it's something we should absolutely pay attention to like any other mm-hmm. tool. It's it's good as marketers for us to know what's happening, to mm-hmm. experiment. There are some very positive use cases that I've heard of happening, You know, at least on the K-12 side, people using ChatGPT in particular for help with things like social captions brainstorming titles, you know, that I, mm-hmm. I'm one of those people who for all of the types of writing that I enjoy writing things like titles and descriptions for small things is probably not my favorite. So it's helpful to, to use it as a tool for things like that with some of the prompts and what you sort of get it down. But I'm solidly in the middle, right? I don't think we should ignore it. I also don't think it's going to be quite the monumental silver bullet change that some people are predicting. I think it's like anything, you know, I mean, the iPhone was a big deal when that came out, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, I I kind of view it as all of these other significant technological advances, even though the Washington Post ran an article about copywriters that are having a hard time finding work as a result of this. My response to that would be, it's unfortunate that there are businesses that are leaning into it to the degree that they're replacing humans, because I don't believe that these tools are able to stand in for industry expertise, human emotion, a human being's tone and writing style. Those are things that are always going to be difficult to replicate. And if that is something as a content creator that you're worried about, I instead of worrying, I would just use that as an opportunity to double down on improving your craft. So that was a longer winded answer than I (laughs) intended, but yeah, I mean, it it is absolutely a tool. I kind of liken it to the way robots are used in auto assembly lines. Like mm, they're yeah. doing the bulk of the work today. Yep. As as AI may for some areas in the future, not not definitely, but may. Yeah. But you need people to maintain, to look over, to make sense of. It, it does not remove people. It just changes skill sets. Absolutely. I, I see potential for testing at scale of things like given this email body give me three versions of subject lines and mm-hmm. and give you opportunities to do some testing for things where you would have to just tediously sit down and and write out it, they still might not be great for a while right. but it gives you opportunity to do some testing give me 10 versions of ad copy or 10 I mean you've got you've got options there for some testing yeah for summarizing documents yes uh, we yeah. love to write and it's hard to pare down yeah so if you can have someone else, in this case a computer, do some of that pairing for you. Hey, here's here's a paragraph that I wrote, but the email should just be a few sentences. Can you summarize this in four sentences? Can you summarize this in four bullet points? And and seeing what it can do with that, I think that's some opportunity. Yeah, I agree. It's it's an opportunity to create some efficiencies in human work. 
mm-hmm. you know, at the, at the end of the day, I think that's really what this is about. So instead of viewing it as a threat or something terrifying, it's yet another tool that offers mm-hmm. an opportunity for us to do our jobs differently. Yeah. One, one piece from the K-12 virtual summit that I wanted to Yay. pull out. <laughs> the idea that academic excellence is not a value proposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we could define it as a base requirement. Yes. A car has to be able to get you from point A to point B to be usable. An education has to be academically excellent to be usable. So, I mean, you're buying a service and experience. As much as we hate to say buying, that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're not buying the diploma. It's not a product. So saying that you have an excellent education is kind of a, well, yeah. Well, you don't. How many car commercials do you see that say it has an engine and four wheels? It will will drive from one place. Well, no, that's the base. (laughs) So I think you have to really focus on the, how do you get specific about how you solve problems? How do you get specific about the experiences, about the outcomes? Yeah. The third big point, the the final one I'm going to lean on here for anyone who hasn't listened to Teresa Valerio Parrott's podcast episode. So good. There was a ton in there. One being the 400 word rule. Mm-hmm. That you need to pare down your emails, pare down your communications. If it's taking more than 400 words, you, you then you're not focused enough. Yeah. Let's pare it down, simplify. The other one that I kind of had this epiphany of, leading with the value instead of building towards it. Yeah. So, you know, we're we're always taught in writing, you lead with an introduction, you have the proof points, and then you have the thesis. But you have to rely on people getting all the way through to get to the thesis. And if that's what you want them to know, then why don't we flip that? And it just makes me wonder, are we, are we being taught backwards? I mean, depending on I think what we are. you're writing. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I think there's, I don't know how much of it is the way we're consuming information has changed. And how much of it is for the style for marketing writing, it needs to be flipped. I think... So one, it's actually a really strong callback to the value prop piece, because a lot of the time when you look at marketing materials for education institutions, they talk around the point. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah. a lot of that language there's about <laughs> academic excellence and acreage and how many sports teams you have mm-hmm. and test scores and, and all of that, which is fine. But those are not the reasons why people actually choose to attend, teach at, you know, donate to your Mm -hmm. institution. It's deeper than that. And I I think in terms of the way that we're taught, we're not taught in school to write for brevity or Mm -hmm. to get to the point quickly. Yeah. And I do, I do think that that's problematic even if you're not an english major or communications major or you know whatever the case may be even i have a 9 year old third grader and he's learning about how to write stories and and mm-hmm. stru- constru- starting to construct you know these longer essays and and things like that and i do think that there's space for understanding some technical aspects of writing mm-hmm. but there's also a change that I think is really needed in terms of helping people to understand how to write for the way that people read now, because it is different. And that's true 
with very few exceptions. You know, I think back to different points in my career and content that I had to create at one point when I was working in law firms. I had to write a lot of proposal responses mm. from these big companies that were looking for legal counsel for various things. And those are, I mean, brevity is not a thing when you're <laughs> writing something like that. But more often than not, I, I think that there is a need for that. So it's it's helpful to understand how to technically structure your words, but there is a need sort of in the middle because what I'm finding and I've also read a lot about is that you have this generation of people who were taught to write really, really long-winded. And mm -hmm. then you have people who've grown up with cell phones and social media and they're used to more shorthand yeah. And we kind of have to find a happy medium between the two so that we all remember how to write for different audiences again. Yeah. And there's a time and a place for law descriptors, flowery. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's that. I don't think an email is the right place for it. No. I don't think a, <laughs> I don't think I don't think a postcard or mm -hmm. we need to get to the point quickly because you have to earn their attention. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier all the things we're competing with. Yeah. There's a time and a place. So that was a that was a good one. The idea here of just using plain language. Yeah. Speaking to them in the same language they use. I, I always use the example of dorm and residence hall. You know, it doesn't matter that people in student affairs think that they're residence halls if the students only say dorm. It's the same with independent and private school. Mm -hmm. Most parents, when they're searching, have no idea what an independent school is. Yeah. We know internally that there are differences between the two, but the average parent who's just looking for a place to send their child to school, mm -hmm. they don't know. Private or public. Right. Exactly. The last one, don't collect feedback unless you have a plan to use it. Yes. Like asking for feedback after events, asking for feedback on things, and then not using it. Why are you even collecting it? Yep. Yep. And tell people what you're going to do with it. Yeah. Close the loop. Make sure that they know we didn't just ask you to fill out this survey. We're actually going to do something with it. And here's when you can expect to see some of the changes that we're going to implement. You know, mm -hmm. that managing people's expectations, if you're going to ask them to take the time to give you feedback is yeah. critical for sure. Yeah. I mean, doing your non-enrollment surveys and mm -hmm. collecting the information and saying, oh, okay, that's interesting. And not having a plan for how you're changing things. Yep. Why collect it? Parent surveys are yep. a big one. Don't do it. If you're not going to have your list of action items, you're not going to communicate about them and you're not going to give people timing. They yes. need to know that their time was being used wisely. And there needs to be actual buy-in from the people who might have to make changes. Mm -hmm. Because if, if big feedback pieces come out about your support services and the support yeah. services staff aren't interested in changing, there's not a point to asking about it. Right. A few things just kind of popped into my head, too, that I wanted to, <laughs> to pick your brain on and talk about. Uh, we have to spend a ton of time on them, but they didn't really fit into either. I think the customer ex experience piece, which I know you're a big fan of. Huge. And, and how it translates to education. There was a, a LinkedIn post that I saw about how Chewy handles. Yeah. Like Chewy, the providing dog supplies. and I saw supplies. that post. Yeah. <laughs> Their commitment to consistently providing mm -hmm. an experience is what gets people talking, getting people coming back and sharing their own experiences, providing a great experience around a single event or a single thing, and then having mediocre the rest of the time. 
isn't how you build this community and this consistent customer experience. It has to be consistent and it has to be high quality. How are we focusing on that? Are we focusing on that for students, parents, alumni? It's really important and it impacts trust as Mm -hmm. well. I was actually, I was doing research for a presentation that I did back in May and I can't, I wish I could remember where I saw this, but basically I found an article about how the way that we establish trust and build trust with brands, with people, part of it is managing expectation. Mm-hmm. And if you're surprised or your expectation isn't met, neurologically, it it like triggers your fight or flight where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I can't, I can't trust this brand. I can't trust this person. And so there's actually, it impacts people on a biological level mm-hmm. when you're inconsistent with the the services and the experiences that you're providing. And so it's more important than I think that educational institutions realize. And again, when we talk about all of these different other entities that you're competing with, you're competing with Chewy, you're competing mm-hmm. with the Four Seasons, you know, especially as some of these higher end education institutions and in higher ed, these independent schools that have these really large five-figure tuition amounts. Mm-hmm. That's the level of experience that you're competing with even if it's subconsciously with your parents and your students. So you really have to think about that. Most offices, I don't know if K-12, and probably some cases is like this, most admissions offices will have the events coordinator or the visits coordinator. But a lot of times they're not provided the type of support and experience around, here's how you measure and focus on the experience. It's Mm. much more of, well, you're good at planning events, so we'll put you in this role. And you need that skill set. Absolutely. Yeah. But you also have to have that next level. Okay, how are we measuring, analyzing all this front of house experience to make sure that it's consistent, to make sure that it's high quality, to make sure that we're getting the best experience, authentic, realistic experience to families, to students as they come in every single day. Every single time. No. And I, I don't think that that's the, I think the approach is much more logistical than mm-hmm. experiential. Mm-hmm. And these experiences are brand signals. If you're saying that you're one type of institution, that needs to show up in the way that you execute your events. That needs to show up in the way that you follow up, the way that you nurture people through the process. When they register from that point of registration, what does the confirmation look like? What do your communications look like between that initial registration and when they actually show up? And that's why I've been asking people to take some time to audit their events in addition to lots of other things you know, in a, a customer experience-focused presentation that I've done, take a minute to even have somebody outside of the admissions office Hmm. audit your event for you and give you feedback and look at everything from parking to what it was like to be greeted at the door. If they were greeted Mm -hmm. at the door, was it accessible? Can people with physical limitations get access to your building or people holding doors for people Mm -hmm. who might be in wheelchairs or have some other physical limitation? Are people getting bored? You know, you need somebody to do that scan of the room to see when people start looking at their phones, because Mm -hmm. that's that's a sign that maybe that content's not resonating or maybe the event's Mm -hmm. too long. So those are things that 
don't just focus on getting people in the door and moving them through the event, but actually take the time to make sure that you're delivering a really solid experience and that you're consistently auditing it and not just looking at numbers. The auditing piece is not just who attended versus who registered, but what is the experience that they had? What is the feedback that you're getting in your surveys? And what are you observing when you take that fly on the wall perspective of what's going on? Yeah. You really have to have both the quantitative and the qualitative. Yes. It can't be one or the other. Yep. Yep. Last piece here, just because there's a number of things that I've been coming in contact with recently and <laughs> just wanted to plug a bunch of resources. Love it. The, the mentorship, the professional development, how are we recruiting and retaining people in admissions and enrollment marketing? There's just a ton of turnover. Yeah. It's not a lot of money. So it's not a high profile job that people are aware of and say, oh, I want to be, I really want to be an admissions counselor. I really want to be an enrollment marketer. Yeah. You know, when, when people say, I want to be a marketer, how often is it? Well, I want to manage social media for a large national brand. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great episode of the Trusted Voices podcast with uh, Valerie Shears Ashby from University of Maryland, Baltimore County. One of the many, many great things in that episode was the talk of this bi-directional mentorship that the the mentor is gaining from as well. It's not just a handing down. It's this bi-directional relationship. So being a mentor, you're gaining as well. And I hope people see that, understand that, so that hopefully we can get more mentors who really, you don't have to be the leading expert on such and such to mentor other people in it. You can teach other people regardless because you're also growing in the process. I mean, if you've been in a role for two years, you know more than someone who's just starting. And you have things you can share with them while at the same time you're getting something out of it. So if you need that sort of motivation, it's bi-directional. You're learning. I love that. Great book I've been reading. Thanks to Tom Golden for the recommendation. This idea that really people need more direction. It's called The Second Mountain is the book. We need more direction. Okay, when you tell someone that all the doors are open to them, you can do anything you want to. <laughs> that's intimidating. That's, that's okay, how do I pick from this giant menu? Yeah. We need direction. I think of the same thing as someone comes into an admissions office. You need direction on what do these career pathways look like. Right. You know, what does it look like to move into operations? What does it look like to move into recruitment leadership? What does it look like to move into strategic planning? Are there off ramps then to student affairs, athletics, to institutional research? There's a lot of off ramps, but mm -hmm. I don't know of many places that are sharing that from the beginning and providing that direction. It's much more, yeah. here's what you need to do your job right now. Yeah. Go do it. Yeah. And I, I think that could help so much with retention, both giving people clear pathways to leadership to the extent mm -hmm. that they want that in schools. Um, and I think that's true even in the classroom. I know in the K-12 side, lots of people who might want to become a principal or some other administrator, division director, move into higher academic leadership. There's no one telling you how to do that. It's never, it's rarely clear. A lot of these institutions don't do performance evaluations regularly. So you mm -hmm. don't get those formal opportunities to get and share feedback and a lot of people end up in positions of leadership without any mentoring, without any coaching. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's really important too. Not everyone who is put in a senior position is there because 
they're amazing at being a leader. It's usually because they're really good at the functional area of their job. Yeah. And we have to we have to be better about giving people tools to also be great leaders, great managers, great mentors, because all of that comes with those jobs, but no one tells you how to do it. <laughs> no yeah. one tells you how to do it. You know, things don't always go so well for you or for the people who end up reporting to you. There's 50 other things we could say, but we've been talking long <laughs> enough here. Q3, Q3, Q3 we'll say Q3. Q3. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been great. I'm glad that we got to sit down, kind of look through everything that's in our Love it. brains, and at least chat through some of them. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. This is These are fun, and I, I hope that our listeners continue to have as much fun with these episodes as yep. we do. Yep, and we'll put all these resources. There's a lot we referenced. Yeah. I'll put that in the blog post that has the, the podcast episode in it, back on the Enrollment Insights blog. Everyone can find everything there leave everyone on a quote from Anne Hanley since she's sort of the the theme here. Love it. Never be categorical. 